0: Let me invite you now to open your Bible to the book of Hebrews. And today we finish chapter 11, Lord willing. I counted, there could be another 16 sermons out of the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. But in my 40-something years of doing this, there are other books of the Bible we need to get to. And the good thing about you, is you have the whole Bible there and you can go back and read the stories of every one of these people we're going to mention today and feed your soul. But we're kind of going to summarize what's been going on in chapter 11 today and move on. With that said, hear now the word of the Lord as we read in Hebrews chapter 11 beginning in verse 32. And what more shall I say? put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This is God's word, let us pray. Father, we are spiritually hungry and we pray today that your word would feed us, nourish us, and strengthen us as the manna did in the Old Testament wilderness wanderings. We pray that the Holy Spirit who inspired this word would also do his work in us that he would open our eyes, soften our hearts, make us responsive to his word, cause us to desire it and to want to grow from it and to want to apply it to the deepest levels of our heart. And we pray that as we do, we would be sure and quick to give glory to the one who alone is worthy. And we pray in his name, amen. Well, what a passage. And uh, this passage is one of the most fascinating in the book of Hebrews. And there's an interpretive key that I wanna get to in a moment that'll help you understand why I say that. But I'm gonna read the quote in the beginning of the bulletin, if you've read it already, then you're ahead, you can take a deep breath, but the rest of you listen. The greatest challenge of the book of Hebrews is to cultivate such a deep and satisfying relationship with God. That we rest in him, whether living or dying, whether comfortable or miserable. The greatest challenge of the book of Hebrews is to cultivate the unshakable confidence that God himself is better than anything life can give us or that death can take away from us. That's a pretty good summary. We've been looking at the book of Hebrews for a number of months, and we have seen that this book is written To a church in which people are suffering. They're beaten down with difficulties Uh, They have troubles and problems and they're at the point of being ready to give up and apostatize and to walk away and to hang it up and say it's over And every single week the book of Hebrews The writer has been trying to give the readers exactly what they need to cope That is to handle the reality, the brutal reality sometimes of life in this world. You know as well as I do, sometimes reality bites, and it bites hard, and it bites deep. But he's trying to give them the resources they need. And he's pretty much saying to them, if you have what I'm talking about, you can handle anything that comes your way if you have it. And if you have it, you can come... Can completely handle absolutely anything life is going to throw at you. What is it, and how do we get it? Well, what is it is faith. And if you look back up in chapter 11 to verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not visible to the human eye, not seen, spiritual reality. Faith is a certitude, it is a subjective sense that God is for me and not against me it is it is a way in which the bible makes clear we please God and he commends us by trusting not in ourselves but in him and in him alone and so the answer is faith but when you read through a passage like this it's obvious that we have here a list of great examples of people who have faith by faith they did this by faith they did that and it's remarkable. But what kind of faith are we talking about here? The answer to that question is discovered by recognizing what I call the interpretive key of this passage, and let me call your attention to that right now. This passage has a list, and there's a division in the list. There are two divisions. You could say there's a first list and a second list, Verses 32 through 35a is the first list, and verses 35b through 38 could be called the second list. So there are two divisions. But we notice that there is a radical division between the people who are listed in the beginning and the people who are listed at the end. Let's first of all look at the people listed in the beginning in verses 32 through 35a. All of the people who are mentioned here are really amazing examples of faith. They're people characterized by their weakness being turned into strength. They started out on the margins, but they came into power. They were about to be defeated. They were facing overwhelming odds, but in the end, they triumphed. So they had triumphant faith. And they experienced military triumph and political triumph. They conquered kingdoms, they routed armies, they administered justice, they escaped the edge of the sword. What's interesting about all of the people in this first list, in every case it looked like they were doomed and they were dead, but they made it through. So for example, some of these are a lot of fun. Notice it says, by faith, some shut the mouths of lions. Well, who's that? Well, there's a number of people, Beniah's one, Samson ripped a lion's mouth wide open. I'd say that's safe. (laughs) But it's probably referring to, remember Daniel in the lion's den? Daniel is the great example of the person who was thrown in the lion's den, but he comes out, though it looked like he was going to die, and I'm sure the lion was starving for some Daniel. He came out, miracles happened, intervention happened, he escapes from certain death, and we all cheer because we like that, don't we? We love winning. Nothing's worse than losing, is it? So we love winning. Not as much as other people do. I remember, I think I've told you this before, but when you've been here 15 years, you repeat yourself. Okay? It's playing Scrabble with my wife. And uh, I won. Not only did I win, But I did what me and my brothers do every time we won growing up. I taunted her. I teased her. I marched around the room singing my high school alma mater fight song. And here I am walking around the room cheering and going crazy. And we were just married. We had not been married long. And the next thing I know, I didn't see it, but I heard it. Scrabble board hit the wall. All the tiles disappeared. She's not here to defend herself. It's true though, I didn't throw it on the wall and there were only two people in the room. And I walked around and I cheered, and I had myself a fine time. And then I realized something my dad tried to tell me when I was about 16, he says, now son, women are more sensitive than men are. And then it came home to me at that moment, I probably shouldn't have done that. But I really love to win, I'm extremely competitive. And I grew up in a very competitive situation And so we enjoy that. We like to see triumphs. We like to see uh, people win. And then the next, some quench quench the fury of the flames. Who's that? Well, they're Daniel's friends. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego are cast into the fiery furnace because they wouldn't bow down to the idol of the king. And they're thrown in. And in every one of these situations, overwhelming odds, certain death. But they escape from death. They escape from suffering. A miracle happens. An intervention comes, and they call to God, and in comes his intervention. They escape, and the greatest of all in this climax of the list is in verse 35 when we get to it, which says, women receive back their dead, raised to life. You know who they are? In the Old Testament, there were two women whose sons died. And through the power of God, they were raised to life. One was the widow of Zarephath through Elijah's ministry where he laid over her son seven times and the boy came back to life. He was resuscitated. And through the power of God, her son who died was raised to life. And then you had the Shunammite woman and she met Elisha and through the power of God, her son was dead, but he was raised to life again. In our culture... These stories of faith, we really love. We really resonate. Because in every single case you have, it's sort of like this. If someone says, the doctor said I was only going to live for a month. I was a goner. Uh, Time was passing fast. And it's sort of like this. You've heard someone say this. and, And they say, but I didn't give up hope. I went home and I prayed and I fought and now I'm better, and now I've recovered, and the doctor says it's a miracle. We love stories like that. The cancer's gone. We should love stories like that. What a wonderful story. Or someone says my business was about to go under. I was facing economic disaster, but I prayed I had faith and I worked really hard, and God turned it around, and now I'm successful. That's a great story, and we're glad they exist. But if your understanding of faith conceptually ends at the end, uh, beginning of verse 35, if that's all you got, and that's all you understand faith to be, you're only one-dimensional in your understanding of it. If you understand faith as, if you try hard enough, if you believe enough, you can overcome anything. If that's your understanding of faith, you're doomed because that's not the way it works because life as it is life in this world with all its brutalities if you really think you believe hard enough and pray hard enough somehow you'll escape somehow things will work out just like you want then you're doomed you're doomed to a life of cynicism we all remember Johnny Erickson before she was Johnny Erickson Tata when she was 17 years old, she was swimming and she dove into the Chesapeake Bay. And she hit her head and she was paralyzed from the neck down and she became a quadriplegic. And uh, she was in a wheelchair and her friends came to her and they were, you know, they were trying to encourage her and they were well meaning as, as they could be. They were her friends and they came to her and they said, if you really have faith, Johnny, God will heal you. And if you're not healed, it's because you don't have enough faith. See, their understanding of faith ended at verse 35a. Their understanding is if you have enough faith, everything's going to work out. You'll escape suffering. You'll escape death. Guess what? Fortunately for Johnny Erickson, she didn't accept that because she had accepted that understanding of faith her life would have been a disaster, and she would have never had the great life she actually has. Fortunately for her and us, the book of Hebrews does not end at verse 35a. Here's where we go, in, or we go on to. In verse 35, there's a major change. And it starts in both English and in Greek with the word others. There are others. There are others who believe, there are others who have faith, and yet their lives went in a completely different direction. There were others who trusted God, there were others who obeyed, and yet it didn't work out for them like they hoped. For example, Peter would belong to the First part of the list, right? Because Peter was put into jail with John and his disciples prayed and prayed. And God sent an angel and he was released out of jail. And that's what we want to hear. We like those stories. We're so excited about those stories. They're fun. And that's service. God came through. But there are others like John the Baptist who went to prison and had his head delivered on a charger to Herod. David, as you know, belongs to the first part of the list because he was a shepherd boy, he was marginal, he was a poor kid. At one point, he was on the run for his life. He was a fugitive, he was marginalized, and yet he triumphed. He moved from weakness into strength. He ascended to the throne, he had power, he conquered kingdoms, and he wins because he trusted God. But there are others, like his best friend Jonathan. You know the story of David's friend Jonathan, Jonathan was Saul's son. Jonathan had prowess. He had nobility. He had character. He was an incredible kid, an incredible young man, just the kind you would want uh, for your son. He was a wonderful, wonderful guy. And yet, because he trusted God, he was faithful to God. He was faithful to his friend David. And because he was faithful to his father, he lost everything. And eventually, he died young in a hopeless battle far from home. So, David trusted God, everything went well, escaped from death, escaped from the sword. But everybody, after the word others in this text, everything goes wrong. Everything. They trusted God, but there was no intervention. There was no miracle. There was no escape. They were put to death by the sword. What do you do when there's no miracle? What do you do when there's no intervention? What do you do when deliverance doesn't come? That happens to a lot of people. The most interesting other, in my judgment, is actually in verse 35 itself. If you read verse 35 with me again, look. You there? Good, because I'm not. Here we are. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. So there are others here. There are others here. And the others, some were raised to life again. It's talking about two women in the Old Testament whose sons died, were received back. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released. You would think when you first read that that the others would be other women. Actually, almost all scholars who've written on the book of Hebrews, say the writer here is talking about other women. And the reason why others don't come immediately to our mind is that the Hebrew writer and the Hebrew readers knew a whole lot more about the history of Israel, especially between the Old and New Testament than most of us do. This is a reference to the famous Maccabean martyrs. You see, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are about 400 years of so-called silence where God hasn't really revealed his word. And so there's a period of silence, but there are a number of writings during this period uh, that tell us about what happened in the history of Israel in those 400 years. But most of us who are Gentiles don't know that much about what is called the intertestamental period. Here's what happened in that time. Antiochus Epiphanes, the Syrian king, came in And at one point, conquered Israel, and he occupied it, and he was brutal. He was a brutal tyrant. One of the things he used to do, by the way, it's going to be a brutal story, so let me warn you up front. Uh, He used to take prominent families, and this is what he would do. He would bring them out in the public square, and he would call on them to disobey God by eating unclean meat, let's say pork to reject the law of God, the ceremonial law of their ancestors, and to show fealty to him. And if they didn't do it, he would torture them and kill them right in front of everybody just to show them a lesson, an example. In book 2 of Maccabees 7, perhaps the most famous of these martyrs was a mother with seven sons who were brought into public before the king. Every single son was asked, Will you disobey the law of God? Will you show fealty to the king? And if he didn't, the king had his tongue cut out. Right in front of everybody. Then his limbs were lopped off. And and they scalped him. And still breathing, still alive, they roasted him alive on a fire in front of his brothers and his mother. And when that one was dead, he would turn to the next son and repeat, What about you? Second Maccabees 7 tells us the mother stood there and encouraged her sons to die courageously. Here's how she did it. The mother encouraged each one of them. It essentially says, filled with a noble spirit, she said to them, It was not I who gave you life and breath. It was the creator of the world who devised the origin of all things and who will, in his mercy, give life and breath back to you again since you now forget yourselves for his sake. So every one of these sons, one after the other, died bravely. We're told here that one of the sons, when he was called before the king, put out his tongue, stretched forth his hands, and essentially said, Take them. I got them from heaven, and for God's sake I'll give them up, but from him I'm going to get them back. A little further down in the same situation, here's another one. It essentially says, With his blood now gushing forth... He took his own entrails with both hands and he hurled them. And with his dying breath, he called upon the Lord of life to give them back to him again. Now, I don't really apologize for the gore, and here's why. We live incredibly safe lives. We really do. Um, We're so concerned with the designer lives we long to live that... uh, We can't imagine anybody reacting this way in this situations, But most people, most centuries, most cultures were ever only a step away from stuff like this. How did they face it? How did this mother face it? See, some women got their sons back, but here's a woman who just saw them tortured. No miracle, no intervention, no escape, but she spit in the world's eye. You want to know why? Well, it tells us right here. This is the faith you need. This is what you need, a better resurrection. Why would I call it a better resurrection? It's a better resurrection, and here's why. The widows get their sons back. As wonderful as it was, and Lazarus was raised from the dead and walks out of the tomb, as wonderful as it was, and Jairus' daughter was brought back to life again, as wonderful as it was, but do you realize, though they were great miracles, they were only resuscitations? Even though that person came back to life, they're still subject to suffering. They're still subject to disease. They're still subject to death. In other words, the terrible day has been put off. Escape from suffering is only temporary escape. From death is only ever temporary. The mother did not put her faith in the possibility of resuscitation, but in the absolute certainty of future resurrection. That is amazing. That is amazing faith. She didn't have airy-fairy kind of hope. She didn't have that. She knew death was going to be reversed. She knew death was going to be defeated, ultimately, not that she knew specifically how. But she knew someday resurrection, new heaven, new earth. The prophets spoke of that. Do you know what she's saying to them? She says, we're going to get those eyes I love that. They poked their eyes out. We're going to get those eyes back. We're going to get those hands back. We're going to get our family back. We're going to get our lives back. We're going to get our love back. We're going to get the world back and far better than it ever was before and don't flinch. Don't you ever flinch because she believed with all of her heart and soul in the resurrection, not just some hope that things are going to somehow turn out better. She believed in the resurrection. And not just in hope so. And here's the reason why. Here's the reason why faith in the future resurrection is what we need to face anything we might face. I don't want you to get the impression that somehow people at the top of the list had less faith than people at the bottom of the list. No. They all had faith. But the contexts were different. If you go to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the ones who quenched fury of the flames... The king had said to them, bow down to the idol. You're going to be thrown in a fiery furnace. And then he had it heated seven times hotter than usual. Do you know what they say? What they say is amazing. They say, oh, king, our God can deliver us from these flames. In fact, we believe our God will deliver us from these flames. But if not, we're not going to bow down to you and your idol anyway. That is resurrection faith. That is resurrection faith. Only God, or our God, can deliver us from death and suffering. In fact, we believe our God will deliver us from death and suffering. What an amazing story. But if not, we're not going to bow down. We're not going to bow down. But if he doesn't deliver us, it doesn't matter. Why not? Because our lives were not rooted in their agenda for God, but in God himself. Their faith was in God. Sometimes we need that reminder that we don't put our faith in, agenda, in the agenda we have for God in our lives, but rather in the living God himself. Now, their faith was not in their agenda for God. Their faith was in God. And when people often say to me, and they do, I trusted I trusted God so much I prayed for this I prayed for this and I prayed and he didn't come through he didn't come through for me even though I trusted him no you didn't what you were trusting in desperately is your agenda for him that was the foundation of your life you have an agenda for how your life is going to go and how history is going to go you have had an agenda for God but guess what you're never going to face life that, like that because the world isn't going to conform to our agendas. If you ultimately think you're believing in God, but actually you're believing in your agenda for God instead of God himself, you're not going to make it. You're just not going to. So these folks believed through it all down deep in God. They trusted him. They trusted that he was the way forward to the future. They trusted that there would be a resurrection. There would be a new heaven. There would be a new earth. And faith that doesn't require success, doesn't need success, that's the ultimate success. One commentator in the book of Hebrews put it like this, and I've already read it. It's the opening quote, and I won't repeat it. But the next thing I want to say is how do we get this? How does this kind of faith become our own if you believe all the way down to the future resurrection the better resurrection if you believe all the way down to God then you can face anything you can face anything but how do you get that verses 39 and 40 tell us and I'm going to try to tell you it's a little bit cryptic but listen carefully All of these were commended for their faith, yet none of them received what God had promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Look what it's saying. In verse 39, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what was promised. We've already seen this. What made these people great what gave them a faith that overcomes the world, that enables them to spit in the eye of the world, so to speak, no matter whether there's a miracle or not, whether there's an intervention or not, or whether there's an escape or not, what gave them that was they were looking forward to something that hadn't happened yet. They were looking forward to a promise that they hadn't received, right? Verse 40 has the audacity to say, we have now have something better. We have begun to receive what they were looking for. The thing that eventually is going to complete all of us together, which would be another wonderful sermon that I can't preach right now, But we're talking about is these people in the past and us are all going to be completed together in the city of God that comes down from heaven by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the point. We have something they didn't have. We have the accomplished fact of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They saw something in the future. They couldn't fill in all the blanks. But we've begun to get the thing they saw in the future in sort of a vague way. Therefore, don't ever look down on people in the Old Testament. Don't do that. You stand in a far better situation than any of them did. We have the resurrection of Christ. Look at these people. Look at them. They were stoned, sawed in two, put to death by a sword. They went about in sheepskins, goatskins, destitute, persecuted. That's a different kind of person than us. Sometimes I think we're just a bunch of crybabies. Well, maybe we are a bunch. I don't know. But it's not because we're made of anything different. In fact, verse 39, and especially verse 40 says, you right now have better resources. You could live bigger lives than they did. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Let me close in this way. Don't get too happy and excited because the closure is a little longer than usual. First, the resurrection. The whole reason these people was, were great was they weren't afraid of death. They weren't afraid of anything. How can you really be so sure of the future that you're no longer afraid of death? Epicurus, the great Greek philosopher, made a very good point. He said this. I could die happy if I was absolutely sure that death is the end. I could die happy if I was totally sure that death is just peaceful oblivion. But since nobody can be sure that death is the end, nobody can die happy. He says nobody can know what happens after death. I hear people all the time saying it'd be better to die if you're suffering. All this talk about death lately. It'd be better to pull the plug because then people are at peace. Epicurus would say to you, what are you talking about? What in the world are you talking about? How do you know what happens after death? How do you really know that? He says we could de- die happy if we were sure death was the end, but since we don't know that death is the end, how could anybody ever be happy? How could there be? The answer to that is every religion gives us stories. Every religion gives us stories. They say, no, 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 no. There is life after death. There are these wonderful things. Believe these, believe these. But Christianity alone, uniquely, out of all the religions of the world, don't give us a story. Christianity gives us an actual person who raised from the dead. An actual person who was raised from the dead. Years ago, I read an article in Newsweek magazine, and I nearly passed out because it was absolutely astonishing. Because Newsweek had actually done some objective research back when that used to happen. And they looked at the historical evidence and data for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and to my shock and to a lot of other people's shock, They basically concluded that probably the resurrection of Jesus must have happened. Probably. Do you know why? Here's the reason why. Bottom line. There is no historically possible alternate explanation for the birth of the Christian church than that the early Christians had seen with their own eyes the risen Christ. No other explanation. There's no other historical, possible, alternate explanation. And if you deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the burden of proof is on you. If you don't believe in the resurrection, maybe you don't want to hear that, but it's true, and it's up to you to disprove it, and you can't do it. I don't care who you are. So you say, well, I don't believe in the resurrection. Okay, how do you account for the fact That hundreds of Jews saw Jesus Christ in groups repeatedly for 40 days after his crucifixion and death, after his resurrection. How do you account for that? People don't have hallucinations in groups, usually, ever. And they spent the rest of their lives not only proclaiming that they saw Jesus, but they even died for that profession. That doesn't sound like a conspiracy, not any that I've ever heard of. You account for the fact that thousands of both Jews and Greeks whose worldviews had no room for a resurrected Messiah. Greeks did not believe in the resurrection of the body. They thought the body was evil. It's a good thing to get rid of. The Jews didn't believe in an individual resurrected Messiah in the middle of history who dies. They believed in a powerful Messiah. They believed in a Messiah at the top of the list in this text. Their concept of Messiah at the bottom, they had no concept of somebody who was jeered, flogged, called out for God, had no escape, no miracle, and Jesus was that. He was crucified. Here's the question then. Why did thousands of Jews and Greeks overnight change their whole world view and start to believe in Jesus? Why did hundreds of them say they saw him? You can't account for that. You can't account for that. You, can, you can't just say, well, I don't believe in the resurrection. You have to come up with a historic, possible alternate explanation for the birth of the Christian church, and it really doesn't exist. Nobody's come up with that. Then if you say, well, I'm sorry, it just couldn't have happened. Okay. You're not doing history now, are you? Now you're operating on a leap of faith. You've left history. You're desperately holding on against the evidence to your European Enlightenment faith, which is prejudiced against the supernatural. Do you know what you're doing? At least admit what you're doing. You're biased. What you're doing is desperately leaping against the evidence by faith to stay away from the certainty that could make you able to overcome this world. Because if you know Jesus was raised from the dead, then you're even more sure that that woman, like her, understood we're going to get our hands back. We're going to get our eyes back. We're going to get our children back. We're going to get our lives back. We're going to get our family back. We can say, Jesus lives and so shall I. Death, thy sting is gone forever. One of the most amazing things to me in all of the Bible is that in every account you have of the post resurrection appearances of Christ in his glorified body, he still has the wounds in his hands. I mean, that's not beautiful, is it? He still has the wounds. In his beautiful, glorified body. Why in the world would Jesus Christ in his beautiful, glorified, risen body still have his wounds? I mean, I'd want to get rid of them, wouldn't you? That's what people use makeup for, to cover stuff like that up. But here's Jesus coming back from the dead. And not only does he have his wounds, but he shows them to his disciples. Why do you think he did that? When the disciples saw those nails go into his hands on the cross, when they saw the cross happening, their lives were utterly shattered. They choked. They betrayed him. They denied him. They ran away from him. They blew it. They melted down. That's what they did. They couldn't handle it. Do you know why? Because they never had actually believed in Jesus. They had believed in their agenda for Jesus, and the nails destroyed their agenda for Jesus see their agenda for Jesus was he was going to rise into political power and they were going to be his cabinet (laughs) and therefore the suffering and death of Jesus undermined all of that Everybody cried out, but there were no chariots of fire. There was no escape, no miracle, and they said, our lives are ruined. The very thing that was giving them salvation beyond anything they could ever imagine, they thought at that moment was totally ruining their lives. And if you believe in the risen Christ, then you can shift your faith from your agenda to Jesus, to just Jesus alone. Then, though terrible things happen in our lives, and you have no idea what God is doing, remember the original case. When the disciples saw something that was actually saving their souls, they felt like, at that moment, it was ruining their lives. So do you, and so do I. So do you, and so do I. See, Jesus Christ will say, embrace me. And then every death will lead to a resurrection. Every failure will lead to a resurrection of greater humility and wisdom and beauty of character. Everything that goes wrong in your life, every sorrow, I will eventually turn that into gold. I think the reason Jesus has his wounds in his resurrected, glorified body is the tragedy of his suffering. God did not show up for him. His non escape from suffering, his non escape from death, makes it more beautiful than all the brightness of his glory. I mean, his death for me, his wounds, make him even more beautiful. Isn't that true? In the same way, I tell you, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, every one of your sorrows and griefs and losses will eventually make you your eventual glory even greater. I don't know how, but I know that it will. And that's the ultimate defeat of evil. A faith that doesn't need success is the ultimate success. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wisdom of this book and the perspective it presents, the paradigm for living in this world by faith. Some of us have spent a good part of our lives on the top of the list. God has come through for us and we've experienced wonderful deliverance and good things have happened to us and that's great and we're grateful. But some of us are more on the second division Those kind of things haven't happened for us. Our agendas have been totally demolished. And our agendas for who God is and who Jesus is and what they came to do is more our agenda than his. We pray we would learn to rest in him and trust that he does all things well and that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us that the things we think are ruining and destroying our lives are going to become glory for us, gold for us. And we pray we would learn to trust you in the dark nights of the soul. Now, Fathers, we continue to worship you. May we give back to you a portion of that which you have so graciously entrusted to us. And may we do so with joy.